last Lord's Day, we discussed the comfort that we find in the teachings of the book of Job. God's Word proclaims that He has all power and controls all things that come to pass. Christ upholds all things by the Word of His power. And in Him we live and move and have our being, our very existence. By Christ all things were created and are held together. The book of Job is an early writing in the Scripture that demonstrates these truths. God rules. God is in control. How often we forget these truths when we are in trouble, cast down, or in great distress. When we are in crisis and things seem to be piling upon us, we often think that the devil is besieging us from all sides. Our families are divided and fighting and our kids are falling into sin and trouble or we are sick or miserable or broke or all three at the same time. And through all of this, we must trust that our God rules in all things. None of these things are happening because God has lost control. Rather, God Himself takes credit for bringing these things into our lives for His noble and glorious purposes although we cannot fathom what they might be. The devil is not in control. Rather, God is in complete control of the devil. God will work all things together for our good, for we trust in Him. No matter how bad our lot seems now, one day we will come to agree that God has done the best for us. The story of Job teaches us that Satan had no independent power to run amok and harm the Lord's people. But Job had no idea of Satan's part in all the evil that befell him. He only knew that God was in control. Job was devastated and he stated that God had taken away those most loved things, but he worshipped God anyway. In fact, God placed his stamp of approval on Job's testimony that God was the ultimate cause of all the evil. God declared this was no false accusation by Job against God, nor was it a foolish charge against God. Nor is it true, as Job's friends falsely claimed, that the righteous are never treated this way by God, so that Job must have sinned to be treated by God like Job was treated. Job rightly contests his friend's accusation of wrongdoing, but he also complains that he does not understand why God has done these evil things to him. The book of Job continues on for 33 chapters with Job and his friends arguing about why God caused these disasters to fall upon Job. And God finally answers Job and his friends. God takes credit for the entire world and the way it operates. God has all power and all prudence and all judgment. Nobody has a right to cross-question God. God argues that if we cannot explain in meticulous detail how God created all things and runs all things, then we need to shut our mouths against Him. Job had learned his lesson. He said he would put his hand upon his mouth and be silent. Now that Job has learned his lesson and Satan has been humiliated, and God has fully vindicated Himself, then God 
restores Job to a better place and all his friends return to him and rejoice with him at his restoration. All the while, Job's great faith in God was undisturbed. Job declared what he believed, that his Redeemer lives. Not only so, but Job believed that he will be raised from the dead one day and will see his Redeemer standing on this earth at the end of days and that Job's body will be restored so that he will see his Redeemer with his very own eyes. The thought of it takes Job's breath away. What the disciples of Jesus went through when He went to the cross is a great example and encouragement of the saints at all times. In truth, there is absolutely nothing we can suffer in our tribulations that can begin to compare with the sorrow of the disciples. Their Messiah was put to death, defeated. All their hopes dashed. They thought that Jesus would set up His rule and rescue Israel from the Roman tyrants. But now Christ is dead, and how can a dead man save anybody? No wonder Peter denied Christ. We have not been through the terror and loss that he and the others were facing. Here is Christ's promise to us all, as He promised Peter. We will go through great tribulations in our lives, but Christ will not permit our faith to be lost. Just as Job's faith was never shattered, neither shall the faith of any of the Lord's people be destroyed by the worst evils that befall us. No doubt the disciples prayed and hoped that God would deliver Christ just like we pray and hope God will deliver us from our troubles. But God wouldn't deliver His Son from the cross. The wicked rulers taunted Jesus as He hung there in shame and agony that God had deserted Him and would not save Him. Why did God bring such horrors upon His Son, our Lord Jesus. Because God was accomplishing our redemption and bringing poor sinners everlasting life. It mattered not that the disciples misunderstood God's purposes. Like Job, they had no idea what was really going down. So too, no telling what God is accomplishing in our troubles when they continue on and on after we begged for deliverance but our troubles are nothing compared to Christ's troubles on the cross. Our troubles are nothing compared to what Christ's disciples went through when He was on the cross. But we know that God works all things together for good to those who love Him, to those chosen according to God's eternal purpose. Now this Lord's Day, we come to discuss the matter of our comfort in our high priest. Perhaps some of you recall that one of Job's complaints buried right in the middle of all this talk and this back and forth and this argument in his ordeal was that he did not have a day's man to intercede between himself and God. An arbiter, a person to represent both sides to each other, a negotiator, if you will, perhaps even a judge to determine between one side and the other. It was just Job against God, straight up. And there was no comparison, was there, between the power of God and the puniness of Job. Job laments the great inequality 
that exists between himself and God in the dispute over the troubles that Job knows God has brought to him. And we read in Job 9 at verse 29 these words. If I be wicked, Job said, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. He's making the point that no matter what he says, no matter what he does, no matter how upright he is, God will toss him in the ditch and muddy him up again. And he can't keep his clothes clean even in a contest with God. For he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any days man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. You see that Job is complaining of the inequality between little old himself and the mighty God who made all things, who has brought these troubles to him. He's not even in a proper position or posture to dispute and to argue with God in this matter, that he needs someone to come between, doesn't he? And you know, we have to remember that we have such a daysman, and that is our Lord Jesus. He is our high priest that represents us to God and God to us. And notice that He is one who can represent us on an equal footing because He is both God and He is man. He is the second person of the Godhead, deity incarnate in humanity. So in a unique way, the Lord Jesus as our high priest fits into the position of the daysman which Job longs for, not by bringing God's level down to ours, but rather by being betwixt us as both God and man so that He is uniquely qualified to represent a poor, miserable creature before the Almighty God. And vice versa, to represent the Almighty God to a poor, miserable creature. And you remember in Hebrews chapter 1 that Christ in His humanity is the very image of the Godhead representing God to us. So that as Jesus said, if you have seen Me, you've seen the Father. Because I come from the Father. And so forth. This desire of Job to have a daysman to equalize the dispute, if you will, is satisfied in the great high priesthood of our Lord Jesus. And we read of this in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Wherefore, in all things it behooved Christ to be made like unto His brethren, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So here is the point of identity which the Lord Jesus, the great high priest, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, 
incarnate in human flesh has, the great identity that he has with us is that in his humanity he has suffered being tempted. In other words, he has undergone the slings and arrows of being a man, of being a human creature, and yet he is God over all. And in that way, and by that beautiful incarnation which Christ has undergone for us, He is made fit to be a high priest to what? Make reconciliation for the sins of the people. You see, in Hebrews 2, the principal idea being conveyed is that God Himself in the second person is clothed in our humanity. Why? So He can have a body in which to suffer in our place for our sins, to make a reconciliation for us. That is, by His dying in His humanity, He will satisfy the demands of justice that God has laid upon poor sinners. And so He is not only the sacrifice in our place, He is the high priest who offers the sacrifice and who presents it and argues its sufficiency as the high priest making intercession for the people for whom he died. And his identity with our humanity, our flesh, in suffering and being tempted is the key to his being able to succor them that are tempted. That is, to help, to encourage, to uphold before God. And so that is Christ's high priestly ministry in part. Not only the sacrifice, not only presentation of the sacrifice, but that being a man, he understands the situation of all his people. Christ understands your situation and he understands mine. And he understands the situation of all his people who are suffering, who are in tribulation, who are in trouble, he understands that because in his humanity he himself also underwent such suffering. We note the humanity of Christ. He suffered worse than we do in his human body. He understands our groanings and our pain and our struggles. Therefore, he is very qualified to represent us unto God in our troubles we appeal to the Lord Jesus to help us. We go to our high priest and we urge and request that he represent us and our concerns, which he understands, before the throne of heaven. And he does so. Why? Because he is our great high priest. Now it had been foretold that the Lord Jesus would understand and would partake of our sins our troubles and our sorrows. We find this, of course, in Isaiah 53. At verse 3, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted but he was wounded for our transgressions. So here is a prophecy 
hundreds of years before Christ came into this world incarnate in human flesh, a prophecy that the Lord Jesus would suffer rejection, would be despised, He would be a man of sorrows, He would be acquainted with grief, He would not be esteemed as He ought to, He would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows to the point on the cross where we deemed Him to be stricken and smitten of God and afflicted, and He was, but not for His own crimes, for our sins laid upon Him. And because of all that, we find at the end of the chapter those beautiful words, He made intercession for the transgressors. You see, He took our place for our sins. He was punished for our sins. He made a sacrifice for our sins a sacrifice of Himself, and now He makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, Christ is not only our sacrifice, but He is also our great high priest. He offered Himself like the priests offered those lambs. Christ offered Himself. And then, like the priests presented the blood of those lambs and sprinkled it upon the mercy seat, so to Christ as our high priest, Chapter 9 of Hebrews makes clear, goes into the great holiest place, not the one made with hands on earth, but the one in the heavenlies, and presents His blood as an atonement, as a propitiation for our sins at the mercy seat. He is not only our sacrifice, He is our great high priest. Have you ever noticed that this chapter, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, is summarized very briefly by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 at verse 34, which asks the question rhetorically, who is he that condemneth? That is, who can condemn the Lord's people? And then it says, it is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. This is a very brief summary of Isaiah 53. That Christ died, Christ was condemned. Therefore, we can never be condemned, we who've trusted in Jesus. Christ was condemned, but not only that, He rose again. He was justified. He was exalted. He was seated at the right hand of God. And He makes intercession for us. Because of all Christ's work as a sacrifice and as a high priest making intercession for us, therefore, no one can condemn the Lord's people. So we see that the high priesthood of Christ is an integral part of His rescuing His people from condemnation. Not just that He made His own sacrifice for our sin, but that He was raised again, that there was the stamp of God's approval and acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus for His people, that He's been seated at the right hand of God in power and glory, And there He makes intercession for us. Therefore, none of His people can be condemned. And when we are cast down and in trouble and oppressed all around, remember that because of Christ, there can be no condemnation for us. Because He was already condemned for us and He intercedes for us on that basis. His perfect obedience, 
and blood shedding for us, He pleads as if even in His silence He intercedes for us. Because right there, evidently set forth in glory, is the condemned sacrifice with the wounds yet visible above as Wesley put it in beauty glorified. They cry out even as Christ cries out for His people that there be no condemnation for His people because He was already condemned for us and in our place. You see, our day's man, as Job put it, has the unbeatable legal case, if you will, to make for his people that he himself has suffered already and bled and died already for the sins of his people and therefore they cannot be condemned. This is the one, this is the high priest, this is the days, men, that is our comfort and is our hope and is our strong defender in the very throne room of heaven itself. Not only so, but Christ has full sympathy for us. And therefore we are assured of mercy and grace for the asking of Him. He has full sympathy for us. Look at Hebrews 4 at verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What he's saying is, lay hold of your faith in Christ on account for one reason that He is in heaven, that we have a great high priest, that He's the Son of God. These are good reasons to hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. See, our high priest is there and we are urged, we are encouraged to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and help no matter what we are going through in this world. And we know that He is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Our high priest, our Lord Jesus, knows full well our troubles, our trials, and even our sins. For He went through them for us here in His life and ministry and on the cross. But then look at Hebrews 5 at verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that He may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that He Himself also is compassed with infirmity. Here is yet another description of how a high priest is to be sympathetic and comfort and help and uphold and support and intercede for his fellow man because he has a similar infirmity, weakness, 
trouble, disappointment, all the things that we suffer when we are being put to trouble and to heartache and to loss and to tribulation. Any high priest worth his salt, you see, is like his people in those regards. Not only so, but God as our Father has assigned this role to His Son with an eternal oath. Christ was assigned to be a high priest before He came into this world. And it was by an oath of the Father towards Him. We read of that in verse 4. No man taketh his honor upon himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, so also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. But he that said unto him, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the high priesthood of Christ is not something that we assign to him. It's not something that he assigned to himself. It's something that his father, that God his father assigned to him and declared that he would be made a high priest forever. It is not a glory which Christ took upon himself. It is a glory and an obligation and a duty which was assigned to him and which in his obedience he will perfectly fulfill. Now this term Melchizedek, of course, is a mystery. But what it means in Hebrew, is the king of righteousness. And also we're told he was the king of peace, the king of Salem, which is that word that means peace. So you see, Christ is a high priest after the order of the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And isn't that appropriate that he should be such, that he brings peace through his mediation for his people, peace with God, peace between God and man, and that He brings righteousness. How does He do that? His own righteousness. He is the Lord our righteousness. We're told in another place. It's His righteousness that satisfies all the demands of justice. So you see that in His mediation as our high priest, He has high things assigned to Him which He has fulfilled and is fulfilling and carrying out that He should make peace between God and man that He should mediate righteousness from God to man, and that God might see His righteousness upon His people whom He mediates for, whom He intercedes for. And all of this, you see, is in fulfillment of Job's longing and yearning for a day's man to intercede between Himself and the Almighty God. But notice once again the reference to the suffering of the high priest at verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, that is Christ, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a man, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a reference, of course, to the pleading and the prayer of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Christ's distress in his suffering, which 
certainly is similar to our distress in our troubles and in our sufferings. And yet, as in ours, so in Christ, it was the will of God that He should undergo those sufferings. There was in Christ a dread of those sufferings. It was God's will that He should not be delivered from those sufferings until He was raised from the dead. God His Father heard His prayer, but He was not to be delivered from the cross. He was to be delivered from the grave. He was to be vindicated by the resurrection. All things were to be set right for Him when He rose again from the grave, and sure enough, they were. But in the meantime, Christ suffered. Christ was full of dread. Not that He was afraid to die, but rather that He loathed being made sin for us, that our sins should be laid upon Him. And yet, how else could it be? Remember He told His disciples, I could pray this cup be taken away from me, but then how would it be that I would accomplish what my Father has sent me to do? To make an offering for the sin of His people. So you see, in multiple ways, the Lord Jesus was perfected by His suffering. That is, He was made a fully understanding and sympathetic high priest in the things that He suffered. And He was made a perfect high priest in that His suffering was the offering for sin that He made. That He might have a sufficient offering to present before God in order to rescue His people from their sin. Christ has undergone these sufferings and these tribulations and these troubles and these dreads. He's undergone them for us. All for us. But in the end, it made him a perfect high priest. One who not only could satisfy God's requirements against his people, but one who also could understand and sympathize with the troubles that his people undergo in this world and in this life. He learnt the fears and dread of his people in times of distress. And he learnt obedience to those sufferings. And so Christ is our sympathetic high priest who knows firsthand our pain and our sorrow and our sin and our desperation in whatever befalls us, whatever troubles us, the Lord Jesus knows because He went through the same as we do. And He is our example in suffering, therefore, as we spent weeks and weeks discussing in our discussion of Peter's teaching in 1 Peter 1, which we'll have to get back to shortly. But He is our example in suffering as we preached last Lord's Day. And by all Christ suffered, Jesus was made a perfect high priest and a perfect Savior for us. And so we can rest in His mediation and intercession. We can rejoice in it. We can take hope in it. We can know that in the end, Christ will have His way for us. And we can look to His example in tribulation, knowing that the end which is wrought by God through all that tribulation is most glorious And therefore, we can have peace 
in our trials and troubles. Jesus knows how God perfects glorious things through all that we go through, even if we cannot know how He does it now. You see, because Christ has experienced the similar pattern of tribulation leading through to ultimate triumph, then you see, He understands and urges us to understand following His example in far lesser ways, of course, that whatever is happening to us now, one day God will work out for glory and good. Not only is Christ a sympathetic high priest, but He's an exemplary high priest in that we can follow His example and plead for His help in all our troubles. As our high priest, He gently leads us through to glory even as He went to glory Himself after He suffered for us. Christ will never abandon His people for whom He is high priest. In Hebrews 7, at verse 23, they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Christ will never betray his people in his high priestly duties. And he will never retire. And he'll certainly never die. He's alive forevermore, amen, and He's got the keys of hell and of death, as the Apostle John recorded Him saying. He never abandons His people. He never goes on a trip or vacations from His job as high priest. He fulfills His high priestly duties perfectly and eternally on our behalf. And we can take comfort in that when we're in trouble when we're in tribulation, that the high priest who is sympathetic to our trouble because he went through trouble far worse than we'll ever imagine. He went through the the worst trouble so that we never will have to be able to know what it is like to be troubled like the Lord Jesus was troubled for us. Finally, and this is important I think, one of the things that assures to us that Christ is in sympathy with His people as our high priest and knows the importance of faithfulness to His duty as a high priest is this haunting truth. We should never forget that our high priest who will never forsake us knows what it means to be betrayed by the high priest. This is one of the great crimes against the Savior that was committed against Him when He was sent to the cross to die. That the high priest of Israel betrayed the Lord Jesus. He betrayed Him. He failed to perform the duties of a high priest, you see. He should have been interceding for Christ. Especially since Christ had done no wrong. But no, we remember what that wicked high priest did. If we read it this morning in Mark's Gospel, the 14th chapter, at verse 55. 
and the chief priests and all the council sought for a witness against Jesus to put Him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against Him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against Him, saying, We heard Him say, I will destroy this temple that it's made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Now, here the high priest was serving in a judicial capacity as the chief religious ruler of the people that year. And you see, already things have gone off the rails because the high priest should have dismissed the prisoner because there were no witnesses against him. And he should have rounded up all those false witnesses and put them to trial for perjury. But no, what does he do? unjustly and against the rules of judicial process, he demands that the prisoner, the Lord Jesus, give an answer to charges which have not been proved by any evidence. What charges? Everybody was telling stories against him. And you know, we see this in our courts sometimes where sometimes you'll have an unjust judge who will sit there and listen to people tell lies and act like there's some credibility to it. And on the other hand, in a few rare occasions, you'll have cases where this goes forward for a few minutes or hours, and finally the judge says, I've had enough. There's obviously no case to answer here. Case dismissed. The prisoner's free to go. But how rare that is. And it didn't happen in Jesus' case. The high priest joined in as part of the prosecution, you see in order to force a case to be upheld against an innocent man, the Lord Jesus, who had never broken any law or done anything wrong, yet they were bound and determined to put Him to death. So they tried to manufacture charges. And when that didn't work, they put this question to Him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And then Jesus was compelled by the law to answer that question truthfully. And what does He say? The high priest puts that question to him. Jesus says, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need have we of any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So rather than do his job as a faithful high priest, you see, this high priest was just a craven and corrupt high priest who condemned an innocent man of blasphemy when Christ had done no blasphemy. He had only told the truth. He is Messiah, come to save His people. One day you'll see me reigning in power and glory, He told the assembled mob that day in the courtroom. You see, Christ suffered injustice at the hand of the high priest. And then they started to strike and smite Jesus, which was improper, unlawful to carry on in a court. And the high priest apparently did nothing to stop it. And he was all in corrupt, wasn't he, for the killing of Jesus for no legal reason whatsoever. Jesus suffered injustice at the hand of the high priest. Rather than perform the duties of the high priest and intercede for the innocent, 
and stand up for what is right and intercede with God on behalf of His people, this high priest was bound to commit injustice. The one who ought to have exonerated Christ as guiltless instead was engaged in a dirty political operation to preserve His power and His position. And you remember this same high priest had said a few days earlier that it was expedient for the nation that this man, the Lord Jesus, should be put to death rather than that the nation should be harmed. And that's what this was all about, you see. It was a trumped-up trial against an innocent man, against the Lord Jesus, and this high priest betrayed his duty and his office and betrayed the Lord Jesus. This wicked high priest falsely accused Jesus and then betrayed Him. And then He turned Him over into the hands of the Roman tyrants who had oppressed all the people. Think of it. The Lord Jesus was betrayed into the hands of pagans by His own countrymen. Worse than that, by the rulers of His own countrymen. Worse than that, by the high priest of His own country betrayed into the hands of wicked pagans, betrayed into the enemy's hands. Just think, the holy and just one, who is our Redeemer, suffered injustice at the hand of Israel's high priest. And so we can know that our high priest, our great high priest, will never betray us or fail in his duties to intercede for His people to encourage us, to uphold us, to sustain us in all our trials and troubles because He knows everything that His people are going through. This is a great encouragement to the saints. We have encouragement in our great high priest. Because He is like us, He is made man, He has suffered like we have, only worse. He's been betrayed like we sometimes are by friends, by family, by neighbors, or whoever it might be. So too was Christ betrayed. He will never betray us. He will never leave us. He will never cease to understand, to sympathize, and to comfort His people whom He represents as our high priest before the throne of glory. And of course, at the Lord's table, we know this already, don't we, about the Lord Jesus. This is our reminder that He wouldn't betray us by avoiding the cross, by leaving us without hope, by vacating His duty to be our Lamb slain, to be our High Priest who offered Himself and presented His blood in the holiest place for our sin to make an atonement for us. He didn't betray us. He went all the way to the cross, didn't He? And not only that, He knew where He was going. It was all deliberate on purpose. Though it caused Him great distress that He might be made our sin. Nevertheless, He was faithful. So faithful, in fact, that He instituted a celebration of what He was about to accomplish. So that we would know all these years later, that the Lord Jesus was deliberate 
in His faithfulness to do His job, to be our high priest, to make Himself an offering for sin, to bring in an everlasting salvation and eternal righteousness for His people who trust in Him. That's what we remember around the Lord's table. And that ought to be an encouragement to us when we are in trouble and cast down and oppressed by the things around us. That our Lord Jesus, in the face of such opposition, completed what God had ordained and thereby He has saved us for all eternity. And to Him and to the Father we give eternal thanks and blessing. So let's give thanks for the Lord's table. Give thanks first for the body of Christ that He was clothed with, that He might be made an offering for our sin there. O God our Father, we rejoice in the faithfulness and obedience of the Lord Jesus in all things, and that though He suffered in His body, He was made a faithful high priest thereby, He accomplished the purpose for which You sent Him, and He made a perfect sacrifice, and He learned all of the troubles and all the heartaches and all the tribulation that we face, only worse. He suffered them worse. We thank You that He is a faithful high priest who never betrays us. And we thank You that He gave His body to be made a sacrifice for us. It was torn and riven there on the cross. It bears wounds even now testifying to His obedience and to His love. We give You the praise for it. And we thank You for this spread that pictures it for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it. And He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he'd give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. And the Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 188 in the black book, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Lord of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. 188.